Hi, I'm Mike Duran. I'm a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute and the director of our Middle East Center. And uh, Peter Rao on my far left here, he's the director of our Europe Center. Uh, and the two of us are uh, honored and pleased to host a conversation with Steve Handley. Hello, Steve. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. Now, you are the former National Security Advisor to George W. Bush. Guilty uh, as charged. And I, I worked for you in the, in the White House. And Peter uh, worked uh, for the president in another capacity and then helped with his memoirs. And uh, we're here today to talk about this book because Mother's Day is coming. There's nothing more than, uh, your, your mother wants nothing more than to have this book about the transition memos from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. And Steve, to get us started, let me ask you um, why you are the, the motive force right. behind this book. Why did you want it to come out, and why now? Well, good question, and thanks again for having me. I appreciate being here at Hudson. Um, we, the transition me memos, there were 40 of them, prepared by the Bush administration 2007-2008 for the Obama administration. They've been declassified, 39 of the 40. 30 are in this book exactly as we turned them over to the Obama administration. And I thought it, it provided a good record of Bush foreign policy that I think was in many ways misunderstood and thought it was an opportunity to get that record out. But we didn't stop there. We asked the people who actually prepared the transition memos or who worked on the issue for President Bush to write a postscript saying what has happened since under the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. And on the basis of that, look back and figure out and describe what we got right in the Bush administration, what we got wrong. And then looking back over 20 years in four administrations dealing with the same set of issues, what are the lessons learned for future presidents? Because these issues are still with us, some of them in a very different form, but they're still with us and they're gonna be with us for a while. Uh, I thought now was a good time, again, because enough time has passed to get a little bit of distance on the Bush administration, a lot of water under the dam since then. And I also hope that this book, plus an online website, and a, web, a digital archive maintained at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, would be a resource for scholars on the Bush administration. That archive has the original of the 30 transition memos in this book, the nine additional ones that have been declassified but are not in the book, and then all the attachments to each of these memorandum, presidential speeches, policies, records of NSC meetings in which the president fashioned policy, uh, contacts he's had, phone conversations, meeting with foreign leaders. Uh, taken together, it is, I hope, will become the go-to place for people who begin looking at the Bush administration foreign policy. They can say whatever they want about it, but at least they will have a place where they can see what we thought we were trying when, to when do. You, say, uh, you, you said you, you had the feeling that the policy was, uh, or, or policies, administration, is misunderstood. What, 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 to your mind, is the area in which it's most mis misunderstood? I think there's three areas, and there's going to sound sort of bureaucratic, but I think they're real. One is, there's a view out there that all the Bush administration did was Iraq, Afghanistan, and the war on terror. And all you need to do is look through the table of contents, and what you see is there's 40 issues really matter to the country that we're dealing with in, all the time in, in parallel, if you will. 
Uh, and that's not just true of the Bush administration. I think it's true of most administrations. And I think there's a view out there that in foreign policy, an administration can only do one or two things at a time and they're out of bandwidth. That's just not really true. I, I remember when uh, sitting in the White House with you, when we would have the senior director meetings, and whenever the issue of, of the pandemics came up, I would snooze. I, I couldn't stand those discussions. And now I look back on it, there I you say, go. you know. We were ahead of our time. Yeah, you were ahead, you were ahead. Second thing is, one of the things that people don't realize, I think, is how much the president matters in foreign policy. Um, and I say to people that the president is the strategist for his or her administration and foreign policy. That is the person who has the high, highest seat and the broadest view and really is the strategist for the administration. And as you go through the book, you see how many of the initiatives of the Bush administration were either originated by President Bush, framed by President Bush, or he had a big hand in their implementation and execution. That's another thing that people don't realize. Who we elect as president really matters in this country, particularly in foreign policy. And the last thing I think is the Bush administration is viewed as great unilateralist administration, quick to use military power, not to use other elements of US national power. And I think what you see from this is a broad range of initiatives across the spectrum where the president would get an idea and might start with a national program but he'd take it on the road to the G7, to the United Nations, to other groups, and would sign up other countries. So if you look at frameworks for dealing with terror or proliferation, we had 130, 140 countries signed up basically to our framework. Or HIV, AIDS, and malaria, the initiatives to deal with those diseases in Africa. National programs taken on the road and became an international effort. And that's, again, one of the great strengths uh, of America, because one of the things you learn from the book, which I think is still true today, nothing much is going to happen internationally on a major international problem unless the United States takes the lead. And that's how you lead. You do something at home, so you put your bona fides on the table, and then you take it abroad and sign up friends and allies around the world, and suddenly you have an international initiative to deal with a global problem. Well, congrats, Steve. Also, uh, on my behalf, I really immensely enjoyed this book because I think it accomplishes two things you didn't mention, uh, which I think are two additional rationales for the book. One is, as a foreign policy analyst who didn't have the pleasure of serving in your NSC, it really gave me a glimpse behind the curtain at what excellent memo writing looks like. Chris, sort of comprehensive, concise uh, descriptions of national security issues. And so you mentioned SMU. Hopefully, it's also taught at the undergraduate and graduate level how to actually write um, at a high level for uh, national security decision makers. And the second is, um, across these 39, 40 memos in the book, you really get the full toolkit of playbook policy options that are available to a president. It's hard to think of foreign policy moves you can execute beyond uh, what is already in the book. Which takes me to my question, and that is um, to your third uh, point that you just raised about the Bush administration working with allies and partners, and sometimes even with competitors, borderline adversaries, to solve problems. There were a series of really nettlesome security problems where the Bush administration looked to bring in China and Russia to solve the issue on the DPRK, the six-party talks, the P5 plus one on uh, Iran. To what extent, given how much the world has changed, do you think that's still available to us as a playbook, as a policy option, to bring in the Chinese and the Russians? How should we prioritize relations and think about yeah. that? That's a very good question, and 
I'll answer it. The bottom line is going to be the spectrum for that is quite narrowed. And it, one of the things when you read the book, and particularly the transition memos on China and Russia, you see how the China and Russia, that particularly China, that Bush faced in his eight years, how different it is from the China today. And let's just start with China. So the China of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao was a China wa that wanted a benign international environment, wanted to focus on its own economic development, had this policy of hide your strength and bide your time, which is not reassuring, because it says at some point there's right. going to be reckoning, but it means in the short run, you've got a respite. They wanted to be part of the international system rather than overturn the international system, and they wanted to partner with the United States. And we did a lot of partnering with them, and you mentioned some of the things with respect to China. But to our credit, we recognized that it could go south. So in parallel with that, and there's a parallel transition memo that accompanies the China transition memo on East Asia security architecture. We strengthened our relationships with our friends and allies in the region, particularly Japan, South Korea, Australia, tried to with the Philippines. We also uh, helped nurture a strategic partnership between the United States and India, which has become more and more important as China has morphed to the China that we see today. So the question becomes, why did that happen? And I've thought a lot about it, and you know, the question is, did we miss a bet? And some people say we shouldn't have been involved in the Middle East, we should have been fight, focusing on China at the get-go. But the China we faced was not the kind of national security threat it was today. And I would argue that if we had a different policy and a much more aggressive policy with respect to China, there would be people who would say today that the reason China is becoming hostile to the United States is because the old Bush administration you know, wanted to beat them with a stick. And instead, that Bush administration tried to bring them into the international system. What went wrong? I think it's, it shows the, the who leads these countries matter. Xi Jinping came in in 2012, four years after the Bush administration was out of office, with a very different view of the West, the United States, China, and China's role in the world. And I think he is convinced that the West is in decline, America's in terminal decline. As the Marxists would say, the correlation of forces favors China. This is China's moment to step forward, to take its rightful place in the international system, to change the rules to be more congenial for China's interests, and in, to be much more aggressive economically, diplomatically, and militarily, really intimidating its neighbors and not just its neighbors. That's the China we're dealing with today. He has a different vision of where he wants to take his country than did Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. Well, so in China, we had Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao give way to Xi Jinping. In Russia, of course, it's been Vladimir Putin all along. Do you think he was who he is today in disguise, or did he fundamentally change along the way as well? You know, this is a really interesting issue, and there's a wide range of views. There are people who say Putin was always about reestablishing Russian power. And initially, he thought he could do that by a line with the West. And he decided sometime in 2004, 5, and 6 that that wasn't going to work. So he pursued it in another dimension. Uh, I tend to think that leaders learn over time. He's been in office 20 years, and that he's evolved. And one of the things that I think is uh, particularly, so, so, so let me go back a minute. So the Putin we dealt with, um, 
wanted a constructive relationship with the United States, and Bush would talk to Putin, and Putin and would say to him, Vladimir, you have a historic opportunity to bring Russia into the West. You know, if you, I'm no historian, but Russian history is 400 years Russia has struggled with its relationship with the West. We thought that the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the end of Soviet communism, there was a chance to bring Russia into the West. And Putin would say to, to Bush, I want to do that, but there are dark forces in Russia that must not be awakened. So you, let me need, you need to let me do it on my schedule and in my time. And we had discussions with him that are surreal now about how we could work together in the Russian, in the former Soviet near abroad, about how you establish a two-party system. Putin, over that time that we're trying to build this positive relationship with Russia over the eight years, he's moving more and more in an authoritarian direction domestically. And the other thing that happened was the color revolutions, and I think this is the decisive thing. In 2003, four, and five, popular uprisings in Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and Ukraine, where people demanded accountable governments and democratic governments. And we thought, probably naively, this is great. These will be prosperous, stable, democratic governments on Russia's border, which will be good partners for Russia, which hopefully will itself reform. Putin didn't view it that way. He viewed the uprisings as CIA front operations, which were to install anti-Russian regimes on the border and were a dress rehearsal for destabilizing Russia itself. So you get Georgia in 2008, Ukraine in 2014, Ukraine again in 2022, and Putin's gone. You say, uh, you say naive, perhaps naively. Um, in, in looking back at it in retrospect now, um, would you, uh, would you, knowing knowing then what you know now, would you have suggested a different course at some point? Say, in with maybe I think the the most obvious opportunity would have been uh, uh, 2008 in Georgia. It's a good question. Um, you know, it's hard to recreate exactly how one how much time we spent on that relationship. For example. Bush and Putin established a dialogue between the White House and the Kremlin that Condi Rice and Putin's chief of staff co-chaired, but Tom Graham and I for the NSC ran it for the U.S. side. And I look back at a chronology. We were either meeting in Washington or meeting in Moscow with this group every month. And one of the things we did, for example, is we tried to develop a common set of ground rules of how we would cooperate with the near abroad. And we had a nice policy statement about U.S.-Russian relations and a ni another nice policy statement about how we were going to cooperate on the near abroad to stabilize Putin's neighborhood. And I, I think we had an indication that things may be going in the wrong direction. When as those two documents went up through the Russian system, that cooperation document on the near abroad got shorter and shorter <laughs> and shorter and in the end disappeared and turned out to be one line in a general policy statement between Russia and the United States about how we we're going to have a positive relationship. There are a lot of people out there who say that our insistence on uh, supporting the enlargement of NATO, our, our efforts to deploy missile defense in Europe provoked Putin. And if you read the speech that Putin gives before he goes into Ukraine in February of 2022, the back half of it is that. 
This is the traditional Russian grievances about American behavior. It looks probably like it was written by Lavrov, the foreign minister. The front part of it, where all the heat is, is Putin. And it is about the, the Soviet crime that allowed Ukraine to be independent, how Ukraine can only be sovereign as part of Russia, and an aspiration to reestablish not the Soviet empire, but the Russian empire in the former Soviet space, to reassert Russian control over traditional Russian lands, which if you look at another essay Putin authored, includes parts of the Baltic states, Poland, uh, Moldova, and some Slovakia and other parts. So I think Putin, and, and part of it is explained, I think, by the fact that if you're in power for 20 years, you know, it's not like fine wine. It does not, you do not get better with age. And in the COVID period, Putin cut himself off from everybody and apparently squirreled himself away in the Soviet and Russian archives. And I think he's seized with this vision that he is Peter the Great, and his job is to reestablish the Russian Empire. And that's why what happens in Ukraine is so important. And it's important not only to prevent that. You may remember, I think maybe you were gone by then, but in, when Putin went into Georgia, we said if we don't impose a strategic cost on Putin for Georgia, tomorrow it'll be Ukraine, and the next day it'll be the Baltic states, and since Baltic states are in NATO, that means war with NATO. So there's a lot riding on getting Putin to understand, to sustain a strategic defeat, if you will, in Ukraine. But it also is a way to set back China, because she has so embraced Putin tightly as his, you know, his preeminent partner. If we can set back Putin in Ukraine, we actually set back Xi in China and maybe cause him to think, rethink his aspirations for using force against Taiwan. So there's a lot writing. I saw uh, an FT piece recently. It's hearsay secondhand, but they quote an oligarch who spoke with Lavrov after the announcement, uh, the February 21st speech you reference, and he asks Lavrov, um, how could the president do this? Who was he speaking to? This is going to jeopardize some of our business. And Lavrov responds, Putin has three advisors, Ivan the Terrible, Catherine the Great, and Peter the Great. So I think you're spot on um, with that. I talked to someone who's very close, pretty close to him, and I know well, and I said, you know, so who has influence? This was before he went to Ukraine. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> who has influence with Putin? And he said, influence with Putin? Putin's the czar. He talks to God. That's mm -hmm. it. Uh -huh. And that may be close to where we are. Uh, to take you to a different region of the world, Afghanistan, which, which the Bush administration is closely associated with, obviously Putin was somewhat helpful as a transition to, um, to U.S. forces trying to flow into Afghanistan early on. But on the other border with Pakistan, we really had a major security challenge, I would say. Um, during the Bush administration, Pakistan was a major, major non-NATO ally. Uh, now it's become something of a, of a BRI hub for the Chinese uh, how should we think about Pakistan today? Uh, what should our policy be? Um, what, if I may say, be so bold, uh, went wrong over the years? You know, this is a great example of the dilemmas. So on the one hand, Pakistan, oddly enough, put more effort in fighting terrorists and lost more of their military folks fighting terrorists than probably any other country. So, it's, so on the one hand, they were a terrific friend in the war and terror. And on the other hand, they were clearly supporting the Haqqani network and others, hedging their bets against the possibility that 
uh, we would fail in Afghanistan, and thereby contributing to the prospect that we would fail in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. We never were able to get the Pakistanis to make a strategic choice to be all in on the war and terror. They had this view that there were good terrorists and bad terrorists, our terrorists and everybody else's terrorists. And we would say to them, you know, terrorists are terrorists. And you may think they're your friends now, but at some point they'll come for you. And if you look at the Pakistani Taliban now using Afghanistan right. as a safe haven to attack Pakistan, the way the Afghan Taliban used Pakistan as a safe haven to attack Afghanistan, it has come true. We never were able to get Pakistan to make that strategic choice. Some people would say it was because we did not do enough to convince Pakistan that we had a, uh, an enduring commitment to a strategic relationship with Pakistan. It wasn't just transactional, paying them to help us on the war on terror. We tried to do that. We pushed a lot of money to Pakistan to try to shore up their economic system, to try to bring some uh, economic development to areas that were used as recruitment for, for terrorists. Uh, but it was difficult. We never convinced them, and at the same time, we're trying to make a strategic relationship with India, but not offering the same kind of relationship with Pakistan. We never resolved those dilemmas. A number of people said, you know, you just need to think about Pakistan as North Vietnam in the Vietnam War. So both in the administration and after the administration, I asked folks to run the war game of what happens if we really declared Pakistan as the enemy, if you will. And it doesn't, the outcomes don't come out well. And sometimes you're fated to manage a problem that you just can't solve. And we couldn't figure out a way how to solve Pakistan. And I haven't heard anybody else who's come up with one, quite frankly. It's very tough. I just got back from India, actually, my, my first trip. Uh, and uh, uh, I found it to be incredibly exciting. Yeah. I haven't, I've never spent much time thinking about it. I've never been there. Interesting. And they're, they're starting to get involved in the Middle East. Um, and um, uh, it, that triggered the thought in my mind that um, the Bush policy toward India is really one of the great successes of the administration. Yeah. I, w I, wonder, I wonder if you agree, if you could just give us a sense of how you were thinking about it. You just mentioned that, I guess, there had been, my impression, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that... Uh, Prior to, to, to the Bush administration, there was a sense that anything we did with India, we also had to do with Pakistan. Uh, and the, the Bush administration broke that. We did. Started developing the, the, the India relationship. Where, where do you, um, how do you understand it in terms of the, the Bush administration? Where do you see that relationship going long term? Yeah. So it's a, it's a good example of, one, there's a lot more continuity in foreign policy between administrations, even of different policies than you would expect if you listen to our presidential debates, for example, about foreign policy, which I think are, are, are a combination of straw persons and red herrings <laughs> most of the time. Uh, there's a lot of continuity, and India is one example where the Clinton administration started moving, and one of the last foreign trips Bill Clinton took as president was like five or six days in India. But it's also an example of how initiatives come from the president. The president, during the campaign, said, one of the things we want to do is I want to get a strategic relationship with India, be thinking about how we're going to do that. And his reasoning was everybody was focused on China as 
you know, emerging power. He thought India was also an emerging global power. And when it emerged, he wanted in India to be working in league with the United States to try to perpetuate a, a rules-based international order based on our values and principles. He was also influenced by the fact that the, India is the world's largest democracy. And his view is that we have the best relationships with countries with whom we share democratic values. So he was all primed to try to have a strategic relationship with India because India was going to be a global player and he wanted to be on our side. Uh, there are those in the administration who also made this argument that you know China is uncertain and it would be nice to have India on our side as we try to manage an emerging China. We didn't present it to the Indians that way because that would be a reason why they would not join rather than the reason why they would join. But it is true that the fact that there is now this quad arrangement between the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, uh, talking among other things about how to deal with emerging China, that it was very foresighted. Uh, it is not perfect. Uh, Indian democracy is struggling like our democracy is with internal challenges. Um, they are buying a lot of deeply discounted Russian oil. We wish they were not doing that. They still have an arms relationship with Russia, but we have to recognize that the relationship between India and Russia is of long standing. It's not going to go away overnight. And I think the administration has given India a little bit of a pass, quite frankly, on their purchases of Russian oil. And I think given the range of issues we have with India today, you know, you can make a case that that's the right thing for them to do. They, they convinced me on that. The, the other, one of the interesting <coughs> things I uh, heard when I was there from a senior official was, uh, if you think, with respect to their relationship with Russia, so if you think that we don't understand that uh, a solid victory by Putin in Ukraine is going to be bad for us in, in Asia with respect to China, then you're you're mistaken. Oh, interesting. We, we definitely, we definitely understand that. But we have a public opinion. We have uh, discounted oil. We can't. We can't. Uh, we're getting it at fifty percent. We can't turn around to our public and say, "No, sorry, we're going to have to pay double for, for, uh, for energy and, and so on." I, I personally, I found it convincing. They're also, they also like Iran a little bit too much. Uh, they but, they uh, do. There, there are two other things that are worth saying about India. One, I was at a conference about a year and a half ago, conducted virtually, and the, the Indian foreign minister, who's a wonderful guy, was asked by an Arabist, a former head of the Arab League, why shouldn't India have a non-aligned policy between China and the United States? And it was very interesting. Jai Shankar, who's a very careful diplomat, said, we're not neutral between China and the United States. We have China on our border, encouraging, <laughs> incurring, uh, making incursions on our border, threatening our sovereignty. We're not neutral in the struggle between India and uh, between the United States and China. It's an extraordinary thing for the foreign secretary to, to foreign minister to say. Secondly, we can talk about the Middle East. The geometry in the Middle East is completely changed from the time you and I were working together on this. Uh, issue And one of the new players in the Middle East, of course, is China, which is now the largest trading partner of the Middle Eastern countries, not the United States, and is buying all that Saudi oil that we used to buy. 
Uh, but one of the new players in the Middle East is also India. And Jai Shankar talked about something I'd never heard about, which is a mini quad, which is India, I guess, the United States, UAE, and Saudi, I think. Israel. I may have that yeah. wrong. It's, it's well, Israel. Yeah. Oh, Israel, exactly right. I2U2. Even more important, yeah. right. Israel. They call it I2U2. I2U2. Yeah. Sounds this like a band. A, this is a huge <laughs> innovation in the Middle East. Uh, one, because it involves I, India in the Middle East, who is defining its interest increasingly as in the Middle East. And secondly, the inclusion of Israel which is huge. So, you know, India is, ought to be, we ought to be talking to the Indians about our Middle East policy, which needs a lot of work. No, absolutely. <laughs> they, they, I was fascinated to hear, I had never tried to think about what the Middle East looks like from, from Delhi, but they pointed out that the Abraham Accords were actually tremendously beneficial to them because it opens up the possibility of working comfortably with the Israelis and, and the Gulf states. And they used to have to, they used to have to balance. Yeah. They want they 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 have a they they have a special relationship with the Gulf states, part partially due to the dependence on oil, but partially due to the large number of expats that they have there and and the developing high tech relationship they have, and balancing their Iran relationship with their Gulf uh, uh, partners was was difficult. But then on top of that, they had to balance um, Israel and their Gulf partners and the. Abraham Accords made that second balancing game unnecessary now and opened up a new possibility. Why don't you mention for listeners what the Abraham Accords are? Oh, the, the Abraham Accords are the normalization of relations between, um, uh, between Israel and uh, the neighboring Arab states. Yeah, big change. And Morocco. A real accomplishment of the Trump administration, I must say. They were really ahead of their time on that one. You write uh, early in the book um, that um, President Bush tried to resolve this traditional tension between realism and idealism through a, uh, as you put it, balance of power toward freedom. Uh, and perhaps the major policy plank of that is the freedom agenda, which uh, the president rolled out, I think, to a lot of fanfare. Then it was, I suppose, tarred a bit, partially uh, through the Iraq war. And if anyone read your transition memo on the freedom agenda, it's probably President Biden, because uh, democracy and authoritarianism is a regular uh, regular plank in his own remarks. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about the origins of the freedom agenda, some of the tensions in policy execution and where we are today? Yeah. Uh, this is a complex subject. Good question. Freedom agenda started for, for President Bush, and I'm not sure we captured this well enough in the book, his view about people. And he believes that individuals are best, who are free from the tyrannies of political oppression, violence, ignorance, and disease, are best positioned to make decisions for their own lives and for the lives of their children and grandchildren. That's what he believes, and it's reflected in his, his international agenda, things like the HIV, AIDS, and malaria initiative, and his domestic agenda, things like No Child Left Behind and, and the like. Um, so that's the sort of framework for the freedom agenda that people deserve to be free. They have a right to be free and that it is, it is in the sort of human soul to want to be free. Or another way to say it, if people are given the choice free of coercion, they will opt for freedom. It found the narrow expression and a broader expression. The narrow expression was in the war on terror, where we're dealing with these extremists and these terrorists who take a perverted version of Islam and start signing up followers give them a vision to, for people who are uh, otherwise uh, disengaged and, and 
dis, you know, very disillusioned and in despair about their own societies. And he said we have to counter that vision. And his way to counter that vision was democracy and freedom. Build a democratic state for yourself and your children. So there's a case where our realist objectives of dealing with American interests, i.e. not protecting the country from terrorist attack, melded with the idealism of promoting democracy and freedom because promoting democracy and freedom was one of the way to give, to counter the ideology of the terrorists. That's the sort of narrowing way in which our realistic definition of our interests and our idealism promotion of democracy and freedom aligned and were not in conflict. But he would also say that in order to try to deal with the problem of despair that resulted in terrorism for the Middle East, we needed to encourage a transformation in the Middle East from authoritarian regimes, which did not deliver stability as we thought, to regimes that were able to provide for their people, were stable, would not be uh, sources of training grounds and, and uh, recruitment for terrorists, that would not uh, invade their neighbors, and that would be allies with us in supporting the international order. And for him, the regime that meets those criteria was a democratic regime. Why? Because they're legitimate, because democracies tend not to invade their neighbors. They do, if they are working well, deliver for their people and they would be sort supportive of an international system which was based on democratic values. So again, his view was for our realistic objectives of a stable Middle East that was not a threat to our interests, we need to promote freedom and democracy because that will result in the kinds of regimes that will meet those criteria. But it was not, as, as some people have written, this a sort of wild-eyed idealism because he said and he believed that those virtues of freedom and democracy would not be self-enforcing, if you will. They needed to be buttressed by this balance of power that favors freedom. That is to say, the United States and like-minded states coming together and putting their diplomatic, economic, and military heft behind the promotion of those values and that kind of transition in the Middle East. So the freedom agenda under the Bush administration, I think, became inextricably linked to what we were trying to do in the Middle East. And surprise, surprise, when the country soured on what we were trying to do in the Middle East, became disillusioned with the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, it discredited the freedom agenda. And it went out of fashion. Break, break, <laughs> break, break, Russia, China, a revanchist Russia, an aggressive hegemonic China, now promoting an authoritarian alternative to the democratic model. And suddenly, the freedom agenda is back on the table as something we are going to need to do and need to promote if we're going to check the effort by China and Russia to overturn an international system based on our norms and values and, and institute one that is based more on authoritarian principles. So suddenly, the freedom agenda is back, but in a very different context. Can I just follow up then on, sure. on both Iraq and Afghanistan, which face very different situations today? Obviously, we're no longer in Afghanistan. I think we have about 2,500 troops left in Iraq. What from that freedom agenda, from the change that Afghanistan underwent from 2001, uh, 2002, until uh, we pulled out um, in 2021, wh what do you think's left that can resist 
or perhaps push back on, on the circumstances the country now finds itself in. And separately, also on Iraq, perhaps you could touch on the prospects for Iraq going forward, given all, all the changes that it's undergone since 2003 yeah. and four. So I'll answer that. Let me do one thing up front first, which is one of the problems about the way we talk about the Middle East is, you know, everybody frames it as these endless wars. Well, they were endless wars for the people of Iraq and Afghanistan, but they were not endless wars for the U.S. military. Because while we started, in some sense, the Afghan model was 1,500 to 2,000 American special forces and, and, and CIA officers enabling the Afghan people to throw off the Taliban. Iraq was a different proposition, 160,000 yeah. folks. That's what people think about Iraq. But we, we modified that Iraq approach. And so combat operations in which U.S. military was engaged in offensive operations stopped in Iraq when Obama pulled out our troops in 2011. And they stopped in Afghanistan some years later when we transitioned to a different model, which was a small U.S. Print footprint training and supporting local forces and working to deal with security problems by, with, and through those local forces. So that's why, at the end of the day in Afghanistan, we got about 2,000 people there. And today we have 2,500 in Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. No, in Afghanistan, uh, before yep. we pulled out, it was down to about 2,000. We have about 2,500 in Iraq. That's a model that was working and was not subjecting U.S. military to the need for offensive operations and the resulting casualties. Americans missed that. I think that model was sustainable in Afghanistan. I think it's sustainable in Iraq. I think it's important in Iraq because for all the problems the country has, if you look at what they've been through from Saddam Hussein and his brutal regime forward, they are still a struggling democracy, having had six peaceful elections and transitions of power, and are trying to build a society in which Sunni Shia and Kurds all working together for a common future. And I wouldn't bet against them. If we're willing to stand with them, and, and you have a Shia prime minister coming to the President of the United States and saying, please keep your troops in my country, because he needs them to balance Iran. If we're smart, we'll do that. And Iraq may actually ultimately, for the Iraqi people, but also for us, be the kind of democratic society where Sunni, Shia, and Kurds can work together, which would be a terrific example in the Middle East. I don't despair of it. I despair about what is happening in Afghanistan. It is a tragedy, especially for women and young people. But you know, those women and young people have had 20 years and where they've tasted freedom. And we'll see how long the Taliban can rule that country without having to give mm -hmm. some accommodation to those, uh, to those voices who are calling for change. We'll just have to see. But today, it's a, it's a, it's a real tragedy. There's a, there's a line in, in, in here uh, in one of the essays about Iraq um, suggesting that the, the, there was uh, the, the cost of the war in uh, uh, 2004, 5, 6 really set back our foreign policy uh, globally. Um, and, and, and you kind of suggested that a minute ago, too, when you yeah. said that the, yeah. a lot of, the, a lot of the, um, the strength went out of the, um, uh, out of the policy, and our adversaries concluded that they could, uh, they could wait us out or take advantage. Um, looking back on that now, 
do you think there's something that should have been done differently? What Michael's talking about is, and we can talk to that, the, so we, we go into Afghanistan in 2001, partly because we had evidence Al-Qaeda was trying to get weapons of mass destruction in Afghanistan. We go into Iraq in 2003, again, heavily because they were pursuing weapons of mass destruction, we thought, in, in error. Um, and it had a huge effect. So Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in 2003 voluntarily gives up his weapons of mass destruction because he thinks he's next on our hit list. And we know in 2005 that the Iranians suspended their weaponization program and their covert enrichment program in 2003 for the same reason. So we're at the point of being able to run the table on the proliferation problem. And in 2004, the Iranians agree with three European countries they will give up their nuclear program. In 2005, in the six-party talks, the North Koreans say they'll give up their nuclear programs. We think we're there. But we get bogged down in Afghanistan and Iraq, 2003, 4, 5, 6. And they conclude the Americans either don't have the will or the ability to enforce a rule against proliferation. And both North Korea and Iran walk out of those agreements, and we're not able to get them back into those agreements. That's what I mean by the opportunity cost. There's a question of, could we stabilize it earlier? Uh, we should have. There are mistakes, I think, that we were made in how we planned. And I'll give you an example. John Allen, who was one of our commanders in the uh, Marine General in the CENTCOM region, said at one point, you know, we do our planning backwards. We're doing a military operation. We start with preparing the ground, and then we do our military operation. At some point, we get to what's called phase four planning, which is what the country is going to look like after we're done. You know, his comment was, we should start with phase four, mm -hmm. what we want the country to look like, what we're going to do to help the country build their own country on a democratic model, and then work backwards to make sure that what we do in our military operation doesn't foul that outcome, but also to make sure we have the civilian capabilities to help post-conflict societies establish good democratic governance, security, and economic growth and prosperity. We didn't do our planning that way. We don't do our planning that way to this day. It turns out we did not have the civilian capabilities to help the Iraqis stabilize it. And we let the security situation deteriorate too long before we started to try to address it. And I would say a fourth thing, though. I would say that we, that the surge, which was a change of strategy and additional forces announced by the president in January 2007, probably could not have happened before because we didn't have a, a legitimate Iraqi partner until the Iraqis <clears throat> adopted a constitution in 2005 and elected a government under that constitution, which finally took power in May of 2006. We had not relearned how to do counterinsurgency, which was this change of strategy. We knew in Vietnam, we had lessons in Vietnam, we forgot them, and it took the military some time to relearn those lessons. We also had Stan McChrystal running an operation that really decimated the leadership of Al-Qaeda. We had 
Sunni leaders who got tired of al-Qaeda out in the western part of the country in Anbar province and were ready, if supported, to rise up against al-Qaeda. All of those things came together in 2007 to permit the surge. I'm just not sure we could have pulled it off uh, any sooner. You think we could have been tougher with Iran? Iran and Syria? Uh, I think uh, yes, probably to both questions. Um, oddly enough, we were able in both overt and covert means to back the Iranians off during the period of conflict. We tried some diplomacy, it didn't work, so we tried some other measures that I think backed for, uh, Iran off. I think Syria was a problem because it was the Damascus airport was throughput for terrorists getting into Afghanistan, and we never really cut that off. There's a whole issue from less Bush administration, though partly Bush administration, because we pushed when Hariri, the Lebanese prime minister, was assassinated, the former Lebanese prime minister was assassinated in 2003, 2004, 2004, 2005 timeframe. We put a lot of pressure that caused Assad to pull his troops out of Lebanon and return sovereignty to Lebanon. There's a question there, should we have pushed harder on Assad? There was a question once the civil war started in 2011 in Syria, whether the Obama administration should have done more uh, to try to uh, enforce its writs on Syria. We, we basically called for the overthrow of the Assad regime and then didn't undertake it. And of course, the Syria civil war allowed Al-Qaeda to reconstitute as ISIS in the 2003-13 timeframe uh, and then go into Iraq and take 40% of Iraq in 2014, which defeated all the good work we'd done in the surge. And it wasn't until 2018 that the Iraqis, with our support, were able to kick the ISIS out of Iraq and reestablish Iraqi sovereignty over the whole country. So the whole how the United States handled Syria over two, maybe three administrations is really a worth examination. We didn't get it right. One thing that uh, I think is a bit different about the foreign policy debate today compared to the 2007-2008 time frame is <clears throat> the increased discussion and attention to connections between our adversaries and competitors. So when Xi Jinping goes to Moscow, that generates huge international headlines yep. and everyone watches it very closely. What do you think is the nature of the relationship between, in particular, Russia and China today, but also with those regional satellites, if I can call them that, Iran, North Korea, maybe even Venezuela, some of these, what we used to call rogue actors? Yep. Well, they're tighten tightening, there's no doubt about it. I, you know, people, uh, Graham Allison wrote something about how basically China and Russia is one of the most successful alliances now. Uh, my own sense is it's, a, it's an alignment of interests. They don't have a formal alignment. They don't sort of go down the line on every policy, but there clearly is an alignment of interest. Um, I would hope that the problems Russia is having in Ukraine would cause Xi Jinping to wonder whether he really wants his global partner to be Vladimir Putin uh, in a Russia-China access. We'll see over time. But it is worrying. Uh, you know, the ideal in these kinds of arrangements is for the United States to have better re relations with either of those countries, with both of those countries than they have with each other. We're unfortunately, and we, 
we did that rather skillfully in the Cold War period. We're in the opposite position now. The relationship between the two of them is closer than either of them have with the United States. And this is an ongoing problem. I think we're not going to be able to separate them. But one of the reasons that I s suggested earlier, one of the reasons why I think it's so important to defeat Putin strategically in Ukraine is because I think it'll be a setback, not just for Putin, but also for Xi. And I think it'll put some strain on that relationship between Russia and China. And that's very much in our interest to do. Can we, uh, beyond just putting a strain on the relationship, um, and I, I would agree with you that we can't separate them, but it, uh, are, there, are there areas in which we can, uh, say, drive some wedges between China and Russia? Is it worth trying, or do we have to consider them as a block? I should think we should not consider them as a block. And I think the desire to try to separate them ought to be inform our policy. It's very tough to do with Russia right now, given the war in Ukraine. Uh, I think it's tough to do with China for an odd reason, and I need to pay some tribute to Hudson as the leadership you have shown in getting U.S. attitudes and policies towards China right. Uh, I think we're still in the midst of getting our China policy in place, both conceptually and operationally. Uh, and it's, it's got some way to run. I think at some point, we're going to have to think about whether there is a way to salvage something positive in our relationship with China. Uh, and one, I think some of that is economic, economics. I think there needs to be this decoupling in the high technology areas, no question about it. The Chinese are de China is decoupling as fast as we are, which gets no pub publicity in the press. But I think there is some decoupling that go ought to go at, in the high-tech areas. I don't, I'm not persuaded that we need to decouple our two economies and establish two different economic blocks in the world today. I don't think that's really in our economic interests or in the interests of geostability. So I would hope at some point we could have a little bit of a of adjustment in our policy to, de to define some areas where trade and investment is okay, so the business community gets some guidance from the administration. And I do think there are some areas where there are global challenges that each of our countries, China and the United States, face that neither can solve by itself, that have to be solved if either country is going to achieve the objectives they have for their own people in terms of prosperity and stability where the two countries really need to be working together. And everybody talks about climate. I think it's stabilization of the international economy. I think it's pandemics. I think there are some other areas where we can work together. But it's very hard to do, I think, right now, because I think the, the China policy is in, is in transition. And because I think our politics are, are such that we're going to be in this correction period for a while, probably even through our presidential election until we can take a sort of whole, you know, draw breath and take a look at the relationship between the United States and China. I have one really boring process question I want to ask. So do you want to, should we end on the boring one or do you want to end on, do you have an exciting one? To uh, I'll on? ask also a boring one, but on Europe, which I can't resist given okay. that I 
We might have something skin. that would be actually optimistic because this is pretty much a doom and we don't, gloom. We don't do uh, Hudson podcast. doesn't do yeah. optimism. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, got Dep that wrong. Depends on your views of transatlantic relations. But obviously, during the Bush administration uh, was a period of NATO enlargement. Also, the EU went from having just adopted the euro to being a relatively mature institutionalized force by the time you passed the baton to President Obama. Uh, now, with such major you know, rupturing changes in Europe, what do you think are strategy towards Europe should be, I hate to say post-conflict, but, um, but, well, but when this war eventually settles. I mean, it's, it's a very important point you make. While we tried to bring Putin and Russia into the West, we hedge by NATO enlargement. Mm -hmm. uh, we did it because the countries that were now freed in Eastern and Central Europe from Soviet domination wanted to join the West, and are we really, given what they've been through, are we then to say, no, you can't be part of our institutions? But particularly, the Baltic states said, you try to bring Russia into the West, okay, but you, we know Russia better than you. They'll be revanchist Russians in the end. And in the interim, you better be building a NATO alliance. And we bought that argument. And it turns out it's a good thing we did. The only two countries Russia has invaded, Georgia and Ukraine, are two countries that are not in NATO. There's a lesson there. So I think the truth is, uh, sadly, until Russia wants to make another effort to have a positive relationship with the West, we're in a situation where we've got to complete the NATO alliance. We've got to get the Europeans to take more responsibility for developing the hard power that you need in order to deter Putin from pursuing his, his dreams of a reconstituted Russian empire. That started in Europe. You've seen it in the Germans. Uh, in terms of their increasing their defense budget and shutting down the, and, and, and eliminating their dependence on Russian oil and gas, but there's more to do. So I think, I think the Europeans need to make more efforts on behalf of their own defense if they're going to expect the United States to continue to make the efforts we're making on behalf of their defense. You, you mentioned the, uh, early on in our discussion here that um, strategy really only comes together in the person of the president. And that, that was one of the big conclusions that I came away from, lessons that I learned in the, in, in the White House. I saw it a million different ways. One, one example I always give people is that um, I thought I knew something about the U.S. and Middle East before I came into the White House. Turns out I knew less than I, than I thought. But I, one thing I knew I didn't know about was, uh, was energy policy and, and, our, and our Middle East policy. And I thought, no matter what happens while I'm in the White House, I'm going to come away understanding better how the, the economics works with the geo strategy. And um, I came out of the White House knowing no more, you know, because the, 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 the economic relations were, were run by the, uh, by, the, by the economic advisors who guarded their territory more zealously than the intel people did. Whenever I would try to get in the meetings, they would say, you know, Mike, don't worry your pretty little head about this. You know, the big boys are doing the job here. Because they, and, so, and it made me realize that really, it only really comes together in the person of the president. Maybe the president and the national security advisor, but even there, I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, there's a lot you don't know. I don't know how many how much you're, you're tied into the, to the domestic policy discussions and, and so on. And it, it, I think this is our system. That's the way yeah. it works. But um, would you, after having served uh, 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 so closely with the president and having seen this close up, 
Is there some way that you would want to modify the system or change it that's doable? Or is this just, we just have to realize that this is the way it's going to be? I think it wasn't quite as bad as, as it looked <laughs> from your vantage point. <laughs> and let me... I, you're telling me, I was, I was down too low to... You were no, one level don't, down. Don't worry your pretty little head, Mike. We, we, we had it under control. <laughs> there are stovepipes in the government. And one of the jobs of the National Security Council or the National Economic Council or the Domestic Policy Council, for example, is to integrate policy across the stovepipes. Now, uh, and one of the ways we tried to do that within the White House was there is a Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics. Dave McCormick had it uh, at the end of the administration. And David dual reported to me as National Security Advisor, but also to the head of the National Economic Council. So his job was to, to cut across the seam between the NSCs and the power ministries, supposedly, and the NEC and the economic ministries. So we try to do that that way. Jim Connaughton, who was the White House person doing energy and economics, didn't have a formal reporting relationship with me at all, but he was always in my office because the things he wanted to do required us to bring together major, major environmental polluters, for example. And so he needed the help of the NSC instruments to sort of bring people together. So imperfect. I think the challenge, I think we've got mechanisms to resolve and, and bring together the various elements of the national government. But some of the challenges we face today are not whole of government problems, they're whole of society problems. And what we don't yet know how to do is not only get co coordination among the US government, how do you bring in state and local governments when it's a homeland security issue, and how do you bring in the private sector business, charitable foundations, private philanthropists. How do you bring together all the resources of the society to deal with those kinds of problems that require those kinds of resources? Cyber is one, climate is another, energy policy is another. So we've, we've got some cha organizational challenges and I don't think we have a good way to do that yet. All right, Peter, do you have another question? Well, I, uh, I think, uh, uh, our time is up, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, being here and sharing your thoughts with us. So and Mother's Day is just around the corner. Ma yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mother's Day is just around the corner. Go out and buy this while you can. Thanks Th a lot. We really Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Nice to be with you. Thanks, Mr. Havlin. Great. Appreciate it.